Well, good morning. Isn't it nice to have an unexpected, precious time of worship? Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Jesus, for meeting here this morning with us. Well, this morning we're going to, um, if, if you have your Bibles, please turn to second in the Red P Bible, Second Corinthians chapter 8. And what may feel like a, a, a topic to address that may feel out of left field out of our time together. We're going to talk about money this morning. <laughs> what the Lord had planned, and I'm going to uh, stick to this because I think it's going to be a very meaningful time. It's page 1146 in your Bibles. As we try to take practices, even this morning, of, of, of stopping and listening to the Spirit, we are a church that is actively seeking a life of renewal. Not just a one-time renewal of meeting Jesus, but a life that is seeking the Spirit's work to be made manifest in our life, day in and day out. We've been addressing many uh, historic practices of followers of Jesus to cultivate this kind of life of renewal. We've been doing this for many months, and today we're going to be looking at generosity as a practice of renewal in our life. Um, mainly, it's going to be a sermon not just of our, of our heart towards money. We're going to be looking at how the gospel informs our response to money when we see it and how, uh, when we receive it, how do we respond in generosity to needs around us. Um, Really, I want to look at, ask the question, like, what is your own relationship to money? I want you to think about that for a second. What is your own relationship to money? What does that look like? We know that, that money in and it itself is not evil. I think money is a, a neutral thing, but like any good thing, when we become uh, enamored and obsessed with something that is inherently good, we can make that thing evil as it traps its chains and handcuffs around us of enslavement. It is a love of money that can make money evil, just like our love and obsession of anything else. And Jesus Christ can um, uh, redeem that and make it good and life-giving once again. And so I was just reading uh, some examples of, of when we think about money and its relationship, our relationship to it. Um, uh, what does that relationship look like in different ways in, in, in our country, how it actually, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll break this down. This is from a, a, a article out of the Greater Good magazine from the University of California. Uh, Carolyn Gregory is her name who wrote it. She's a professor there. And she summarizes, she summarizes seven ways of how this love of money can affect us and what happens when we allow it to, to seep into the loves of our hearts. Um, uh, so here's seven things, according to a bunch of data and research that was compiled in this area. Is number one, people with, with an excess of money, uh, as it increases in their life, what happens is there's a direct correlation between the increase of money in our life um, and less empathy and compassion for others. A direct correlation. Number two, money, more money can begin clouding our moral judgment, even in the smallest of ways. Uh, people who drive like, you know, the Lamborghinis, the super luxury cars, you know, the studies show that they are the most likely to not stop 
when pedestrians cross the road. Interestingly enough. Number three, moral wealth can often lead to addiction. How many famous celebrities do we know who get rich and famous and find ourselves just completely devastated by addictions of alcohol and drugs and sex and the like? Number four, money itself can become addictive. Not so much the money, but the pursuit of money can become addictive and enslaving. Five, children who grow up in wealthy families are at a higher risk of having lives of emotional turmoil, of anxiety, of stress, depression, eating disorders, substance abuse. All of this is much higher than children from lower income families, as the data shows. But on the flip side, people with lower incomes are quicker to call money evil and develop deep mistrust of other families that may have money. So money can cause lack, you know, trust issues and division, even in the last thing she shows is, as we know, all know, there is absolutely zero correlation between higher wealth and happiness. There's no correlation, even if those commercials tell you otherwise. But the fascinating thing about this article is, is how it shows the result of this love of money that can come from our lives. And once again, what is your own relationship to money? Um, We're gonna look at a crucial practice of renewal in our life, and that is generosity. A biblical understanding of generosity can redeem a relationship to money. And this practice will keep us, this practice of generosity will keep us from its chains. It is a practice that brings us closer and closer to experiencing the heart of God. And it becomes this almost Pandora's box that can unleash such joy and just the greatness of joy in our life that we have never known. So our text is actually two chapters of the Bible this morning. So sorry, lunch. You're not going to be having lunch today. We're here for hours. I'm just kidding. Our text is 2 Corinthians 8 verses 9. We'll be kind of skipping around in these chapters. So here's the story, 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. Um, for what some scholars think may have came through persecution, perhaps combined with a drought. Churches in Jerusalem were really struggling. They were stuck in poverty. Some didn't have access to food, and it was really bad. So Paul got some of his companions and went out to help gather gifts to bring back to help these Christians in Jerusalem. And so he went to other churches to gather this gift that would help, you know, these churches pull through. So Paul is writing in this specific letter to a very affluent church in the city of Corinth. We know it was affluent because Corinth was a very affluent city. It was a very wealthy city. And here we're going to look at his response as um, uh, he went to the church in Macedonia, which is not an affluent place. You think of, you know, West Virginia in our country versus maybe, the, you know, Washington, D.C. or whatnot, right? That's kind of the correlation if you want to think about it. So he, he goes to Macedonia and he, he, we're going to see what happened there when he goes to these more impoverished church and he asks for a gift. And something amazing happens. And he's writing to the church in Corinth who seem to be extremely slow and their generosity towards their fellow Christians in need. So hopefully by the end of our time today, we're gonna have a biblical grasp of of generosity, but even more important than that, hopefully your understanding of the gospel, of the goodness and graciousness of Jesus Christ is going to be amplified in deep and meaningful ways. So the the first thing we're gonna look at this morning, point number one, is that generosity is a grace. 
Generosity is a grace. Verse 1, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God that, has, that God has given the Macedonian churches. I love this stuff. Listen to this. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that a great verse? Can we just think about that? Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy came about. It is well with my soul. If you know the history of that song, all right, if you don't know it, go look it up. It's an amazing, convicting, heart-wrenching history of that song. But out of someone's extreme trial, joy rises up. Out of this church's extreme poverty, generosity rises up. But he calls this a grace. How are we to understand generosity as a grace? A grace is an undeserved gift. It's something not earned. And in this case, the generosity expressed should be understood as having a supernatural quality. That is, the, 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 the heart and desire towards generosity was stirred up not by their own strength, but from the outside, from God himself through his spirit that stirred in this struggling poor church a spirit of generosity. And Paul says that's what we call grace because it was an undeserved gift. It came from the outside, but even he calls generosity a gift, a grace, because that's what it is. Out of their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Let's keep going. For I testify that as they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. All right, so he testifies. Paul takes his little legal kind of, you know, spot here, raises his right hand, you know, or right hand. And he says, I'm telling you, I'm testifying that they didn't just, you know, give what they were able to. They went beyond that and they begged us for the opportunity to share in this. They begged us the opportunity to do this. We're going to keep going here. We're going to see where this kind of deep desire came for generosity because second point here, number two, is their generosity is a result of a God-saturated life. Their generosity is a result of a God-saturated life. Verse five. And they did not do as we expected, but listen to the order here. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Love God, love neighbor. You see a little kind of mirror there. We love God so we may love others. So he urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So this Macedonian church, Paul says, is all this generosity stirring up first because we saw just how much they gave themselves over to God and to his lordship. Their generosity was an expression first of their devotion to the Lord. This is kind of that Romans 12:1 language, right? Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. So as we speak of generosity as a pathway of knowing Jesus and 
experiencing a life of renewal. And even if even right now there's a little bit of a stirring and saying, yeah, you know, I've always kind of wanted to be more generous. The first step is to not just, you know, write some bigger check or, or you know, do something very generous tomorrow. The first step is to fall in love with Jesus all over again. That's the first step. What does your love for Jesus look like right now? That's the first step in generosity. Is your life in full submission to him? That's your first step in generosity. Because only true generosity will flow from the one who was truly generous. And this is what Paul drives us to, right? He doesn't drive us to the religious practices of generosity first. He says, no, to find the true generous one, we need to look to Jesus. Look at this. Here we go. Point number three, Jesus was generous, so we are generous. Verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. There's that grace word again. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's break this down. I love this verse. But Jesus' own grace and generosity, it stands as the example of generosity. And I, we're going to take a long time to kind of break down this one single verse. This will be the majority of our sermon here. So let's, let's, let's listen to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Jesus was rich. When was Jesus rich? This is referring to the time, if it could be called time, eternal before he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one. He is, and he was, and he always has been, and he always will be. He is on page one of our Bibles when God spoke the world into existence in the book of Hebrews. It says all things were created through him. He enjoys sharing in the very glory of God as he himself was the very glory of God. To say he was rich is the most profound even understatement if we want to read it as good Americans do, right? Because when we say rich in America, we think, well, Jesus, was he surrounded with gold and Lambos in heaven? Is that, is that what rich means? Because in our cheapness in America, that's what our minds go to when we hear of wealth and riches. We go to those things that are burned up in time. We go to those things that we're not going to be buried with when we die, but we surely treat them as if they will. Jesus was far richer. It is to him that all power and all glory and all honor and all praise belongs to as the one who always has been. In the book of Psalms, this is a cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. Anything in this universe and on earth that contains life, it only exists because Jesus himself, who is the author of life, created it. All life is sustained because Jesus Christ himself sustains it. Paul is speaking into this situation directly by calling Jesus rich and pointing to all of who he was. It's not just some hyperbole. His riches could never fully be described. Taking all the wealth of the richest and most wealthy people in history and pulling all of the resources together will be equivalent to dipping a five-gallon cheap Home Depot bucket into the sea of the riches of Jesus Christ in his pre-existent eternal state. It cannot simply ever be compared. 
And this is what makes the next part of this verse so spectacular when we read it, so phenomenal and also so gut-wrenching. Yet for your sakes, he became poor. For your sake, he became poor. For your sake, he became poor. When did Jesus become poor? Two ways, two ways. The first poverty experienced was a taking on of a temporal life. The pre-existent one taking on flesh and bones and the frailty of human, the frailty of human existence. Nothing is more vulnerable than a human being born, an infant. Nothing is more vulnerable than an infant. To think of the pre-existent one, the author of life, submitting himself voluntarily and willingly to be born is a crying little utterly helpless infant, it breaks the imagination. It really does. In fact, until kids are at least three-year-old and any parent in this room can testify, anybody who's ever been with a kid three-year-olds or or less, if you don't follow them around, like they're going to hurt themselves and maybe die, right? Like you have to like literally follow them around to keep them out of danger because they can't even take care of themselves for years, right? This is the first poverty Jesus placed himself into. We don't often think about Jesus as a child or as a baby because we have very few stories of him, but that is the first poverty, and the fancy word for this is the incarnation. He became man, born as a child, but his second poverty was literal poverty. Literal poverty. It is on every page of the Gospels, on the early pages of the Gospels. Again, Jesus, as the pre-existent one who shared in the glory of God for all of eternity past, he could have chosen, say, the daughter of Caesar at the time who ruled the, the known world. He could have chosen to be born in that palace, being raised in the luxuries and privileges of life there. He could have chosen to be born, say, in the family of a ruling class in Israel who had equal, you know, kind of access to, you know, education and money and privilege and finance. But rather, as prophesied centuries before, he chose a teenager named Mary, all of 14 or 15 years old. And this teenage woman, materially speaking, had nothing to show for her poverty is almost on every story that she shows up in in the Gospels. In Luke 3.24, when she and Joseph brought the child, Jesus, to be presented at the temple for his ritual purification, it says that she brought a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. That was an option for this, this specific sacrifice. That option was preserved for the poorest in Israel. That's what Mary brought. That's how Jesus chose to enter into this world in literal poverty. And he was raised by her and her hammer-swinging, blue-collar working father named Joseph. They lived ordinary, poor lives, so ordinary that when Jesus began his ministry was healing people and preaching the kingdom of God, people that knew him all his life said, who is, we know this guy. Like, who does he think he is now, Right? He lived the most ordinary life that many even missed his coming because he chose to be so ordinary up until his ministry began. Now, J.I. Packer in his amazing book, Knowing God, if you haven't read it, please pick it up. He he wisely states that to, to, to really understand what took place in Bethlehem, to really understand what we can call the incarnation of Jesus taking on skin and bones and, and taking on human flesh, to really understand it, we must look to the cross. Because Mary's story 
the Bethlehem story, the Christmas story, his poverty in life is the how he entered, whereas the cross and his death, his death on the cross is the why. Why did Jesus become so poor? Let's look at this, says Paul, that you through his poverty might become rich. If submitting himself to poverty wasn't enough, Christ himself submitted himself unto death, even death on a cross. That's what we call, another fancy theological word, the atonement. He atoned for our sins. He covered our sins. He paid for our sins. It was in this order that we may receive the riches of salvation, that we as sinful fallen humanity may be reconciled to God, that that we may be saved from our own sin, saved from our own shame, our own brokenness, that we may receive the Holy Spirit, God with us, in us, and through us to change our hearts and even fill us to the full with the fullness of God and his love and his grace and his mercy that so much so he can look at us and say you are a new creation in Christ because of what Jesus has done and know that our eternal future now is completely secured in what he has done for us through his resurrection from the dead so no Paul is not quite talking about that Jesus wants to give us some kind of earthly riches he says no he became poor that you may share in his eternal riches forever and ever. First Peter 1 says this, all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withered, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. No human can live forever. No wealth that we build in this life will be carried with us in our coffins that has any impact on our life after this life. Any riches or pleasures in this life is nothing compared to that forever future we have with God and in God, all because of Jesus who became poor that we might become rich. So now we know, we begin to scratch at the surface of this conversation of generosity. You guys still here? You guys awake? You guys with me? Generosity begins allowing us to share in knowing Jesus and putting on his shoes for a moment, if you will. We know that his generosity was costly. In fact, it cost him his life. He gave himself up for us. There's no price tag you can put on a human life. If the author of life was willing to die to pour out on us the riches of salvation, so back to our passage here in our conversation generosity, as if there is a, 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 as there is a great need among these impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, Paul says, surely being generous to these needy saints should characterize a church who received such generosity from the Son of God himself. Which brings us to a fourth reason why the Corinthians needed to be generous. Um, sowing seeds of generosity, it reaps a harvest of joy. And this is when we get practical here. This is when we begin to get practical here. We'll get super practical here in a moment. We've laid down some good, we can call a theological framework of generosity. We always look to Jesus to inform how we live as Christians, okay? As so we look to Jesus, we saw generosity from him. Let's get a little practical now. Um, sowing seeds of generosity reaps a generous harvest of joy. Let's look into this. This is in now skipping over to chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. This is Paul. He says, remember this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If generosity is a grace, it means that generosity may not exactly be a natural outflow of our hearts. We may not look at what we have and say, I can't wait to be generous with this. That may not be our human impulse if you're anything like me, at least, right? That may not be the first thought we have when we look at the very things that we are given by God. But if generosity is in the very nature of God, we see in Philippians that Paul speaks of that. Jesus came and gave himself up for us simply because he is God. Like being God means that he is a self-giving God. It means that he is a generous God. So when we see the incarnation, it should make total sense of our understanding of God. Of course he gave himself up for us. He's God. He's a self-giving God. And so Paul kind of pulls us into this and says, experience like the very nature of God as you practice generosity. He wants to share himself with you as you practice generosity. And this is exactly why Paul says in verse 7, this is not some compulsory action. If it's compulsory, you're missing out on the joy that comes from generosity. We know this for a fact because somebody raise their hand in this room if you love to pay taxes to the government. Let me see your hands. Exactly. We have to. And we're always finding ways on how how we not have to do this. Like, is there some loophole here somewhere? Like, we don't want to do that because we have to. Okay. If we approach generosity as if, well, I guess I have to be generous. I'm a Christian. That's what I have to do. You're robbing yourself on the, on, the, on, what you're, on the seeds that you could be sowing that could reap a tree just plentiful of fruit that can be just filling you with the joy of God himself. Generosity must be voluntary. Generosity, it taps into joy. But there's some promises that undergird us as we learn to cultivate generosity in our lives. Because the next point is this. Real generosity is sacrificial. And it always requires a little bit of faith if you do it right. This is what I mean. In all cases, if we're really being generous, there should always be like a, some faith needed. There's always a, needs to be some kind of little tinge of faith and maybe some, in some cases that the Lord leads even a lot of faith. Because we really can't call generosity generosity if you're only giving out of, say, your, you know, your money, if you're only giving out of your abundance to where it doesn't really cost you anything. Because Jesus gave himself away, his own life. Our riches of salvation received by him was because of his sacrificial generosity. This is what Paul hits on here. He goes into verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So I'm gonna listen to this carefully. 
God is able to make grace abound to you so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, having all that you need, your good work of generosity will overflow. God will supply, in other words, what you need as you seek to be generous. Jesus encouraged us as well. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That is, what you need, you will have. God scatters his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's directly a quote from Psalm 112. God supplies seed to the sower and bread for, the, for food will supply and increase your store of seed and it will enlarge what? Will gold bars show up in the mail tomorrow morning? Is that what Paul says? No. He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. I was just in time to think about this. Enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What is Paul saying? Well, Christ is righteous on our behalf. His rightness before God was perfect. And it was so right that it is something that you and I can never actually accomplish on our behalf, but it was needed for our salvation. But it was accredited to our account. Like, you know, we were in debt and now all that's paid for, but now we're like received his payment um, and his righteousness is now as if God puts on glasses and he sees us. He says, I see all the rightness to Christ live as if it belongs to you, even though you didn't lift a hand for it. It was done on your behalf. And that's why you're my son now, because of what Jesus has done. The righteousness of God has been given to us. And this righteous faithfulness of God continually teaches us and shows us that he is after us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. And so being generous then, it it, it takes a, it's like us stepping out in faith on that promise that says, I know he's never going to leave me. He's going to give me what I need. So I have some abundance here. I'm going to I'm going to be generous, trusting, knowing that he's going to be faithful to provide what I need. And it will increase the harvest of our righteousness. Guys, our generosity must must hurt a little. And through this language, that's why Paul is affirming, it's okay, God's going to take care of you. Remember, he's pointing back to this Macedonian church who had nothing. And as they give, Paul, as they gave, Paul was shocked. Now, I'm sure they didn't give the biggest gift of all the churches. This was an impoverished church, but it was more qualitative than quantitative, if you get what I'm saying. It's like the story of the widow's mite, who gave everything she had, while the Pharisees and all the rich people kind of, they were around the rich religious leaders kind of gave, you know, of their abundance that didn't cost them anything. And Jesus says, no, look at this woman. She gave a tiny little amount, but it cost her everything. And that's the difference. They wouldn't need to be reminded of those promises if they were a little bit afraid. Like, I don't know, this is kind of a painful thing to do. Like, are you going to, is this going to be okay if I step out in this, right? When was the last time you gave or you were like, oh, this is going to hurt a little bit. This is going to hurt a little bit. I'm going to break this down as we close our sermon here. True generosity is sacrificial. But here's some practical, super practical No one is asking you to give what you don't have. And Paul actually literally says this in verse 12 of chapter 8. He says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, speaking to the Corinthians, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, don't be so generous that you starve yourself and you find yourself in need. That's not what is being called on here. That's not wise. Number two, don't be generous from your leftovers. As we've been saying, be generous until it hurts. Um, There's a story I'll never forget. 
that one of my professors told me when I was in college, and I want to share it with you guys this morning. I don't think I've shared it. If I have, whatever. I'm going to say it again. The church he grew up in um, had an apartment on, in their church building, and this was for missionaries who the church supported, who would often come back to the church and stay in this apartment, and the apartment would be furnished with, you know, things that they need. They would let them know ahead of time, hey, we're on the field and we need X, Y, Z. And the church would be called upon to go and provide X, Y, Z to furnish an apartment full of all that stuff. So they come back, receive the gifts, get some respite, and go back to the field. Now, this particular family was in a cold climate where they were, and they said, we really especially need jackets and sweaters. It's cold out there. We got some old, old clothing here. We need some, some nicer, warmer clothing. And so um, the church just filled it with jackets and sweaters, right? The pastor goes up and he observes the gifts placed in the apartment before they arrive. And he sees jackets that are missing buttons that maybe have a tear over here, a hole over there, faded, worn out, stretched out. And he sees sweaters that would absolutely champion the worst ugly sweater contest that you could fathom, filled. In other words, what happened was people said, oh, instead of going to go to Goodwill with my, you know, old clothing, I'll just go give it to the missionaries. So he stands up the next Sunday and kind of calmly, collectively, but firmly, he says, true generosity is not the giving of your leftovers or your extra. If they are in need of a jacket, go and grab your favorite one. Go and grab that one and give it to them. And you put on the one with holes, right? Be generous to the point where it, it might cost you something, right? That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. So number three, just some, some ways to be generous. There's so many ways to be generous. Um, I, I don't know if I want to walk through all of these things. I'm going to let the Spirit of God... Um, just speak to you now. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close this morning. So if you're here this morning, you may be saying, I, I ain't got nothing. Like, I, I, inflation is crazy, you know. Some of you really are stretched. It feels like this is horrible timing to preach a sermon on generosity, right? Um, for sure. Maybe. No, actually, it's not the worst time because it's probably the best time, Right? Because if, if some of you in this room, especially if you're on fixed incomes, like you feel the inflation stuff. Like this is a serious conversation for you. This is a, a reality for you. But here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Bring this before the Lord. Some of you right now know of needs, family members, neighbors, you know, uh, whatever it might be that the Lord maybe at one point even stirred in your heart to go and, and, and do something for it. Give some of your monies towards some of your sacrifice, you know, it's time. Maybe he, you're right now in your mind, you know what that is, right? It could be in giving to this church. It could be in giving to a missionary out on the field. It could be whatever it might be. And my encouragement to you is, is just to come to him and say, Lord, like, I want to, I want to know what it, what it feels like to, to be in yeah, these truths like Paul's favorite phrase is we are in Christ in Christ and, and Jesus is asking he's sharing himself with us and this is an invitation to share in the generosity of Jesus through 
the giving of our own resources to those who are in need. And the question I have before you is, are you willing to pray the prayer? Say, Lord, would you guide me in this, even until it hurts? Whether it's a small amount that is costly for you or a larger amount that you just feel uncomfortable with, the question this morning is, Lord, I want to pray right now, Lord, that you would just guide your church into this practice of renewal of generosity, Lord. I thank you that in so many ways, I I said this before, I am preaching to the choir. This church is just, this is something that uh, this church is known as a generous church. And I thank you for that. But Lord, would you continue to stir even in a deeper way, a spirit of generosity for you, Jesus, were so generous towards us. May you unleash among us, Lord, the joy of giving. May we be people who are self-emptiers just like you are, self-giving just like you are, Lord. Holy Spirit, just speak now to your people. Speak now to your people.